What's up, everybody? Welcome to episode three of Your Asian Best Friends. Uh, thank you for coming back. We're really excited that we've made it to episode three. I'm Bernard. And I'm Taylor. And uh, I'm glad we're still doing this. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, determination, right? I mean, wow. Made it through two episodes. Two whole episodes. <laughs> Honestly, though, like growing up, I would totally like start projects and drop them like really early on. Yeah. It was like one of my things. I was probably, probably part of some of those projects. <laughs> <laughs> uh, but if you're listening for the first time, uh, Taylor and I, we're childhood friends. We're best friends. We've been best friends for years and years. And on this show, we just talk about how weird it is to be Asian. And, you know, like we've been friends for a long time. So it's really just us hanging out and uh, getting away from our families for a bit. <laughs> yeah. So what are we going to talk about this week? This week, we're talking about Blue Bayou, um, a new film that's out now in theaters. It's by Justin Chan, um, Asian-American filmmaker. Taylor and I saw this movie a few weeks ago. We saw, a little, uh, saw it a little early, and I also interviewed Justin Chan um, for work. I'm a film critic, so I've got um, insights from the man himself. Mm-hmm. And fun fact, Taylor already knows this, but this is our second time recording this episode. It is our second time <laughs> recording this episode. Why is this our second time recording this episode? Well, we recorded our, uh, um, this episode, the first iteration of this episode, where we talked about Blue Bayou and our reactions to the film. Um, and we had a lot of fun. Yeah. But then literally the next day, news dropped about Blue Bayou mm-hmm. that there is some controversy surrounding um, the the film. So I guess do you, should, we'll explain that later, I, I suppose. I don't know if we need to explain that now. But there are some controversies surrounding the film that totally kind of changes the conversation. What's funny is that the second you left uh, my house after the, the record, I was uh, on social media and I saw... Justin Chan's statement, but it was in a complete vacuum. I didn't know what it was a response to. So I was just like, that's kind of weird. Why do you <laughs> why do you write this long reply to, <laughs> to nobody? Like, all right, that's a nice little sweet thing to say about the community he's representing. And then the next day I see this long tweet thread that we'll get into later. Yeah. So I guess in a nutshell, Blue Bayou is about adoptees in this country essentially people the story is about this this character who um was american but was brought here um and was adopted and so his his parents did not document him when he came to this country from korea so he's fighting for his citizenship as an adult with a wife and kids essentially and the controversy essentially is that a real life adoptee who was going through hardships regarding his citizenship, said, hey, this is my story, and I didn't give him permission to tell it. <laughs> so this is serious stuff. <laughs> this is really bad. So we're going we're gonna to get into that yeah. uh, later on in the show. Blue Bayou, our reactions as well as our thoughts on the controversy. Before we get to Blue Bayou, <laughs> I have a surprise for my old buddy Taylor. <laughs> oh, God. Jesus. So... In the aforementioned first iteration <laughs> of this episode three of Your Asian Best Friends, 
we went on a little tangent. Yeah. Where we talked about ambrosia. Taylor, what is ambrosia? It's a delicious jello dish. Um, <laughs> some may call it a jello casserole, where you have your jello, you have your um, whipped creamy deliciousness on the bottom with uh, some pretzels or saltiness um, inside, and it's uh, the perfect dish. Taylor and I both enjoy ambrosia. I was introduced to ambrosia for the first time at one of Taylor's family parties. Mm-hmm. Uh, which um, so Taylor is mixed. He's he's half white. So it was to me. I was like, oh, I'm like kind of at a white party, mm-hmm. and I saw this dish ambrosia that kind of looked like a white person dish, and it is. I come to find out. <laughs> but the funny thing is that it was apparently not prepared by one of your white family members. No, it was by my aunt, who's Japanese. <laughs> <laughs> But anyways, okay, so... Wait, 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 wait. Yes. Why did you look at it and say, that's a white dish? Because there's jello in it. There's jello in it. And it had like grapes and Cool Whip. (laughs) Seemed like a white dish to me. Like an 80s, like 70s, 80s type of thing. When we recorded last time, Taylor got pretty worked up about Ambrosia. I can see it in his eyes getting worked up now. <laughs> I loved it. It was like, <laughs> it made me laugh yeah. so much. So I've got what I hope will be a recurring segment here <laughs> on your Asian best friends. <laughs> Taylor. This is like my partner's worst nightmare. <laughs> Just listening to me rant about something passionate. Something Red stupid. ass Taylor today. Red ass Taylor. So I'm going to run dishes. <laughs> I'm going to run some dishes by you, <laughs> and I'm, g- I'm going to get your opinion. Let me give you your, give me your takes okay. on these dishes, okay? <laughs> okay. We already covered Ambrosia. <laughs> well, well, first, okay, no, we haven't covered Ambrosia, because we're, we're never going to release the last episode, so let's start with Ambrosia. People generally, from what I've heard, just in my circle, I don't know what that's worth, but from people I've spoken to, they consider ambrosia to be kind of a trashy, disgusting barbecue dish, like some type, mm-hmm. type of a family get-together dish. What's your stance on ambrosia? <laughs> and their, and, and their yeah, opinions. Most, most, of my, most of my perspective is going to be associated <laughs> with the dummies that are, <laughs> that are judging ambrosia without ever tasting it. And it's just like this ridiculous like Alice Waters holier than thou perspective of like I know all because I'm farm to table I grew up in the Bay Area and all that bullshit and it's stupid it's class it's it's completely just dismissive of a food that you've never eaten just because you think you're better than it and it you're not I agree. <laughs> I agree because when I had ambrosia, it was delicious. It is. It just is. Yeah. It just it just works. Yeah. Um I do know well, it's okay. So I know some people who have had ambrosia and they didn't like it, and I think I believe them that they just didn't enjoy it. Mm-hmm. But when people start, you know, saying like this is like trashy food. Yeah. What does that mean? It means nothing, right? It means absolutely nothing. It means that you have zero life experience. It means that your your 
worldview of food is limited to what people tell you is good or not good. It means that you have you actually don't have an opinion because you're just being told what to believe. It's like this idea of like prestige, right? Right, exactly. Which should not exist in food. It just shouldn't. Like it there like I think the same thing about American cheese. It's like it's the best cheese. It's the best cheese. It's the best cheese. <laughs> yeah. It turns into a sauce. <laughs> yeah. It's like <laughs> by far the best cheese. And if you give me a burger without American cheese on it, like you're you're doing it wrong. Yeah. You know. And it's the same thing though. It's like the same idea of like I've been told that this is a bad thing, so I'm going to look intelligent by telling you that this is trashy food. All right, so I'm going to move on. Okay. I think we could we could keep going and going on that one. Um, so in general, just kind of American Asian dishes or American Chinese dishes, mm-hmm. like a chow mein. Yeah. Well, how, how do you feel about chow mein and the conversation of authenticity? Oh, yeah. I think, I mean, it's the same perspective I have about uh, ambrosia. It's like you shouldn't, food should be judged by one criteria, maybe two, if if you're um, concerned about like environmental factors, how mm. the food, how animals are treated in, in the um, process of that plate getting to your table. And I, I take that stuff very seriously. But beyond that, it's like, is this delicious or is it not delicious? Right. Like everything else should be taken off the table, whether it's authentic. Like who decides what is authentic and what is not authentic? Yeah, it's like a David Chan thing, right? Yeah. Like, like, what what is authenticity really? What's the value of authenticity really? It's the same thing as the value of saying ambrosia is a trash dish. It's to make yourself mm. feel better while you're eating it or to look down on people that are eating it. I think with like American Chinese food, like... It's delicious. I think the only problem with it is it might mask all the other beautiful cuisines of China. Right. 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 But that's not chow mein's fault. Like, chow mein's a delicious dish. It's not its fault that that's what is. It's the people. It's the people. It's the people. (laughs) Yeah, it's the people's fault. Exactly. (laughs) You know, and it's up to them to do the work to discover all the other things that you know, Chinese cuisine has to offer because it's like limitless what it has to offer. Okay. We agree there. I, I'm, I'm so afraid of the day when we don't agree. <laughs> you rip me a new asshole and you don't want to be my friend anymore because I like hate chow mein or something. No, I love chow mein. I love chow mein. It's like a textural thing, right? Like I love the textural. It's salty. It's it's like something that was crunchy, but now it's like getting soggy as yeah. you eat it. Like it's such a brilliant idea. Um, but I mean, one more. All right. One all more. Right. Mission burrito. So so Taylor mm-hmm. and I are from the Bay Area, mm-hmm. where in San Francisco there's a neighborhood called the Mission. Yeah. And they have a certain type of burrito. It's the Mission burrito. It's as big as your head, mm-hmm. full of rice. And what what else makes a mission burrito? The rice is like the big thing, right? And the size. 
I feel like um, it depends on, are you like talking about a super burrito? Like a, yeah, you're, like you the know, super you burrito. like your yeah. sour cream, guacamole, sour cheese, cr- that's beans, right, yeah. rice, and choice of meat, generally, right? And like huge, like really big. And really big. It's like a meal for two that's eaten by one. Not authentic. Not an authentic burrito. But is it good? Well, I mean, burritos... I think you can put into question whether what a authentic burrito is. So an authentic, I actually know this. So authentic, yeah. <laughs> authentically, originally burritos were just a tortilla with meat and maybe beans in it, mm-hmm. and then it's wrapped up and it's wrapped up in a tortilla. The reason was, um, so that the farm workers could put it in their pocket as they went out to work in the fa- on the fields. Mm-hmm. I learned that in person from the mouth of Jonathan Gold. Did he have a burrito? Told in his me pocket? that we were eating burritos. <laughs> we were eating burritos, and he and he told me what the, he 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 filled me in. The late great. Yeah, I mean, I'm gonna sound like a broken record here, but like I, again, like the Mission Burrito is delicious. It's its thing. It's its own thing. I don't think you should measure any food against its authenticity. Right. I think there's really clumsy preparations of food that Mm. don't respect the ingredients themselves and what they're able to do. And I think that's when you get into like the really cheesy... Like a fusion burrito or something. fusion shit, right? There's no thought put into... There's no... Yeah. yeah, There's no thought put into it. It's just novelty. Um, And I think it's important to you know, push food and think about how far you can um, extend the possibilities of a dish. But, like, I think there's a moment where you probably have jumped the shark a, a bit, right? But Mission Burrito, I mean, it's just like, all you did was add more deliciousness to a, <laughs> a, a burrito. Like, what's wrong with lots, guacamole, lots sour yeah. cream, and cheese? <laughs> you know, it's like... It's uh, it's delicious, and if you think about it, like, what is the what's the timestamp of authenticity? A mission burrito has existed for how long at this point? Like, isn't it authentic? And what what to the about mission? yeah? And who? What about the people that made it initially? Is not authentic. Exactly. You know, if that even matters to begin with. It's kind of, yeah, like I think, you know, we've been alluding to this entire time. It's like this whole conversation around like what's real food or what's what's like original, mm-hmm. you know, um, and the idea that whatever came first is best, which is like we all know is bullshit. Oh, yeah. you know, that's all we do as, you know, food industry people try to improve things mm-hmm. and lots of chefs are really successful at improving things. You know, yeah. it's not that they eschew, um, uh, tradition 100%. You have to respect why these dishes like a burrito, like a spaghetti or whatever, or, or not spaghetti, but like a, a bolognese or whatever, mm-hmm. why it was so widespread in the first place is because it's fucking good. It's right. a good idea, right? It's yeah. a good dish. You have to respect that before you improve upon it. Right. Yeah. So Mission Burritos, I grew up on Mission Burritos. Mm-hmm. I grew up in and around San Francisco my whole San Francisco has been the constant in my life. Yeah. My whole life as far as where I live. And I love Mission Burritos. But you know what, dude? I got to a point 
where I got tired of, depends on the place, mm-hmm. sometimes it's too much rice for me. Yeah, I mean, also there's only so much you can do with it, right? Mm. Like a mission burrito is a mission burrito. Like it's not like, uh, if you get tired of a mission burrito, kind of get tired of all the mission burritos at the same time <laughs> well there's some of them aren't as big so it's like the ratio like sometimes a mission burrito when it's like re- like really fat mm-hmm. sometimes it's like all rice and i hate mm-hmm. that kind of but then sometimes if it's a smaller super burrito that's rounder i've found like if it's actually round still when you mm-hmm. get because the big ones turn into like a pillow yeah when you get them but the ones that still stay around um uh what's that play la taqueria uh yeah, but even La Taqueria is like a. It's I would, pretty big. It's hefty. I wouldn't sit, but I wouldn't even call La Taqueria like a classic mission. Not a burrito. mission burrito because yeah. they don't have any of that. Yeah, it's just true. rice, beans, and meat, which is and they do it great. It's so good. Yeah, it's so good. I like the smaller ones because there's less rice. I feel like when they're they're huge, it's too much rice. But that's the only issue I have with mission burritos. <laughs> <laughs> so just, <laughs> I love mission burritos. <laughs> I do love mission burritos. I ate so many of them. My so my um my grandma's house is in the mission and it's been the constant house in our family. Like we it's like our home base there. Um I love that house. But right next door is a bodega, Mexican bodega, mm-hmm. which we don't have bodegas here, <laughs> you no. know, on the West Coast, which is like the worst. I hate, I love bodegas. I hate that there aren't more of them here. Yeah. But there's a Mexican bodega right next door to my grandma's house. I got so many Mission Burritos there. Yeah. It's the best. It is. It's so comforting. And it, it's cheap. Um, yeah. <clears throat> working man's it's cheap food. And it's filling. And I think often you'll find people turn their nose down to things that are cheap and filling mm. because they think they're above it and they don't realize that they're just propagating these systems that they probably on social media are very loudly against but um <laughs> think food is um a safe haven to express all their um ill-founded and stupid opinions about food this is a regular segment <laughs> for sure i love this so yeah, Taylor, Taylor's in the food industry. But, but by the way, like we—I don't know if we mentioned this before—but Taylor's in the food industry for a long time. He's a butcher. He knows his shit. This is why I'm asking him about food because he loves food. Very passionate about food. He taught me a lot about food. So that's why he—he's so passionate about this stuff. <laughs> yeah, this is a quick way to make the rest of the podcast just take on an aggressive tone. <laughs> yeah. Let's put Taylor in a bad mood. <laughs> right to start the podcast. <laughs> I'm, this makes me giddy, though. It makes me happy. So a few weeks ago, Taylor and I watched Blue Bayou, the new film by Justin Chan, Asian-American filmmaker. It's about an adoptee named Antonio LeBlanc. Yeah. yeah Antonio, Antonio LeBlanc. LeBlanc. Um, who was adopted in this country and never had his documents filled out. He came from Korea as a baby mm-hmm. and um, through no choice of his own, was never documented as a U.S. citizen, but as an adult with a wife and a daughter who is hers, um, not his by blood, but the, the daughter views him as her real father, even though her biological father is estranged. 
and uh, he and his wife, who's played by or Antonio and his wife, who's played by Alicia Vikander, who's fantastic, they have a baby on the way. Mm-hmm. So Antonio's got this family, nice little family in New Orleans, Blue Bayou, not New Orleans. It's like outside of New Orleans. I learned. Okay. It's but they're around New Orleans, Louisiana. Yeah. And uh, he's got to fight for his citizenship because he's being threatened with deportation because he's not documented under no fault of his own. The movie's incredibly powerful, and, and Taylor and I were just moved by it. Yeah. I mean, it was, um, I think you mentioned um, as we were leaving the theater that it was just like this traumatic experience, which I completely resonated with. I think the entire time um there's this undercurrent of uh doom almost Mm. that you feel like even the the moments of levity when he's with his daughter and he's with his um with his partner and they're enjoying their lives together it feels like it's such a fragile um dynamic that can be torn apart because you know that there's this impending case against him right um the whole thing felt very uh visceral like i just i it just resonated at such a primal level with me that it was really difficult to get through some of those moments yeah for so i think um and i don't know if this was the case for you but because i'm Asian American and because this is the only country I've known and because I have kids and a partner, Mm -hmm. um, this film totally resonated with me as well. And all of the, um, you know, as you mentioned, the impending doom of this deportation, right. Um, was, you know, kind of, I couldn't avoid, I couldn't help, but, um, imagine what that would be like for me because this guy's kind of in a similar position as us. Yeah, he has a family. He's a uh, about our age, mm-hmm. and um, he has you know he has kids. He has a wife. He has a life, and he's completely American. Only speaks English, and this country is telling him he doesn't belong here. And I just wonder how I would deal with that if if I I had to leave, potentially be separated from my family and the country I love. You know, mm-hmm. the only place I've known. Um, the whole movie is just so painful, but also um, but nuanced as well. Like you said, there are moments of levity and, and there's a lot of love. It's all driven by love, right? The fuel here is that he loves his family and they love him. And uh, those are the stakes. He, he might lose everything, everything being his family. Yeah. You know, I think it's really interesting what you just said about um, being told that you don't belong in a country that you um, feel like you belong in this the only country that you know. And I think as Asian Americans, we feel that even when we're not under the pressure of actual deportation, Mm -hmm. of actually being told like, no, you actually have to leave this country. So I think part of the film's resonance with me is the fact that on a different level, Like, we've all been told in some way or another that we don't belong in the country that we love and that we know and that we um, identify with. And 
I don't see it that far removed from his experience in right. that like he is American like through and through and because of this um loophole loophole in in this law he is being told that he's actually not American and it's it's scary it's scary to think to be sent to a country that you have no no like actual relationship with and mm. no way to gain your bearings um once you arrive there like what do you do in that situation so antonio not only is he being faced with deportation but there are like people in the movie who are white who are working against him um in like frankly racist ways <laughs> there are racist right. ass white people in this movie yeah not all the white people are racist ass white folk not at all there's like way more complexity to all of the characters mm-hmm. in this movie there are even some characters who you assume are going to be a caricature of a racist white person yeah who are not by the end of the movie Really, really cool stuff going on there. Cool, maybe not the word. <laughs> it's really, it's really dramatic right. stuff. But um, yeah, this character Antonio just goes through so much uh, that resonated with me. And I, the thing um, that I know you you've mentioned before when we talked about this movie that is so impressive is that within the family dynamic, where it's like white daughter. Um, white wife and then um, Antonio who is Korean mm-hmm. um, there are um, marital issues yeah between the partners but it's never about race <clears throat> no it's no. never about him being Asian and not mm-hmm. being good enough for his white partner or whatever they do have issues right to say the least they have to work through a lot of shit but it never is race a, a part of their internal strife between them, which right. I think is really cool. No, I think I think it's I think it's great. Like I because I think so many of the films that we've seen in the past really try to highlight that. Mm-hmm. And honestly, like growing up in a mixed um, race family with my mom being white and my dad being Japanese, like it always felt natural, and it wasn't like we were having these really big dramatic blowups in my house where my dad was saying that my mom just couldn't understand him because he was Japanese. Like a culture clash every day. (laughs) Yeah. Like it's so unnatural. Right. Um, so in a lot of ways I identified with the ease of how they presented that relationship, even though there was a lot of strife, as you mentioned, like the love between them was very natural. They're very convincing as a couple. Yeah. Yeah, they feel like a real, just two people who are who love each other. Yeah. Um, which uh, means a lot to us because Asians, and particularly Asian American men, very rarely portrayed with this type of complexity and depth. Right. Uh, Antonio's not perfect either. He's been a criminal mm-hmm. um, in, a, in, you know, in a previous life, and he may, might, you know, in the movie, return to some of those tendencies. Mm-hmm. wrongfully so he's not a perfect guy and that's cool that he's not perfect you know like yeah. uh, we we discussed Shang-Chi 
um, a, a couple episodes ago, and I did find Shang Chi to be like not the most three dimensional no portrayal I ever, mean, no. right? I mean, it was three dimensional in the in the Marvel universe, right? Like, yeah, it's. I mean, it's it's limited in some ways. In that, like, I don't know. You're not going to have like a deportation saga in a Marvel movie. Like, it's just not going to be depicted the same way. Like, there's a yeah. certain design to those movies and rhythm to those movies that well, I think people I, expect. Yes, yes, I totally agree with what you're saying, but there are examples in the Marvel movies where there are characters that feel three-dimensional, mm. like a Tony Stark, where like he, he's totally like imperfect and not the most handsome guy on the planet yeah. and witty and tortured and all, this, all these things. I feel like maybe Shang-Chi just needs more time to kind of develop uh, over the course of you know, however many movies he's going to be in. But anyways, comparing Shang-Chi to this movie, it's so cool to see how how deep of a character Antonio is. Mm. This Asian-American guy with a white wife. Never seen that in a movie before. <laughs> not, that, not that I can think of. Maybe, I'm sure there are some, you know, exceptions. Like in The Walking Dead, there was Glenn, the character Glenn who had, who had a white partner. I mean that's probably the most famous uh depiction. Stephen right? Yun, yeah. Like that was like the biggest one. It was like it was like shattering the glass ceiling in a way. It's like, like oh my god. <laughs> An Asian guy had sex with a white woman. <laughs> and it never happens. It never happens. It never happens. And happens. similarly, it wasn't like a big deal on the show. It was just like, yeah, of course. Look at Stephen Young. He's fucking yeah. A beautiful man. Of course he gets to have sex with a white totally woman. Totally works. <laughs> totally works. But Blue Bayou, um, we got to talk about, without spoiling anything, the final moments of the film. Mm-hmm. Um, can't share any details, but um, it's just heart-wrenching. Like, the most powerful, painful, um, horrific, traumatizing three minutes in a film I can remember seeing, honestly. Yeah. I mean, in some ways, I walked out of that film, those final three minutes. Have you ever seen Chinatown? Mm-hmm. And how the end of that movie is just so brutal and you're not necessarily expecting it. Yeah. That's a similar feeling that I had watching the final scene of this movie of just like, you walk out and you're almost out of breath and yeah. you don't understand what just happened. And different with this film because I could very easily put myself in his shoes. Yeah, I really I couldn't breathe um, in the theater after those last few moments. Uh, that last scene, uh, I, I honestly it was hard to breathe. I couldn't talk. Mm-hmm. I couldn't say a word for a few minutes, like several minutes afterward. And then um, at the end of the movie, I don't think this is a spoiler, uh, but uh, Justin Sean shows pictures of real life mm-hmm. adoptees who have either been deported or are under threat of deportation, um, driving home the idea that 
or the fact that this movie is a movie with a purpose that is meant to raise awareness for what these adoptees are going through right now um, and the injustice that they're facing right now. Mm-hmm. Um, in my interview with Justin Chan, I, did, I was able to speak to Justin Chan, which was amazing. You know, yeah. really, really cool to be able to talk to that guy. He made a great film uh, and he's doing it for us. You know, he, he talked about how he just doesn't understand how someone who had no say in how they were were or weren't integrated in this country legally, mm-hmm. how they have to pay for that, um, for that technicality with literally their lives. Like they're leaving their yeah. life here, the only life they've known, to go to a country they've never really been to, mm-hmm. right? Like maybe they were as a baby or as a young person, but it's not their fault. They were children or babies. And for them to have to uproot their entire life and go to a country where they don't even know the language, mm-hmm. <laughs> they can't even speak whatever, like Korean or Chinese, um, is is uh, insane. Yeah. And th- th- he expressed how that's why he made this movie. He also talked about how he made this movie because he wanted to see Asian American actors like himself play more dimensional roles. He had been kind of playing bit parts in movies and secondary, like supporting roles in movies and TV shows for a long time. Mm-hmm. He was in Twilight. And I think, you know, before he made this movie, he was in a sitcom. And he was, he told me, you know, I could have made an okay living playing roles like this, but he wanted more. And he believes that um, he and, Asian actors like himself, particularly English-speaking Asian actors like himself, should have the opportunity to play leading, deep roles in movies. So he just did it himself, and he's been, he's made a few films now. Mm-hmm. And Blue Bayou clearly is the one that's like seemingly going to break through. Yeah, and isn't that like just a indictment of the industry in itself that he has to write direct and star in a movie just to get material that he resonated with you know i mean it's it's almost an impossible situation to put somebody in and he transcended that impossible situation and created a beautiful film yeah yeah really good um it premiered at at con earlier this year received a, a 10 minute standing ovation which at con is kind of a thing. Mm-hmm. Um, only like kind of the best movies receive these kind of <laughs> receptions and ovations. Uh, and, and Blue Bayou got it, and I think it deserved it. But now let's, let's get into the uh, controversy. <laughs> I want to hear what, 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 what you have to say about this. So like we mentioned, Blue Bayou is about adoptees and a real-life adoptee by the name of Adam Crapser who's a Korean uh, adoptee who's deported in 2016, says that Justin Chan took his story and used it in Blue Bayou without his permission. That's essentially what the the, uh, controversy is. Uh, His team reached out to Adam Crapser before making the movie to see if he would uh, consider being a consultant for the film. Crapser said no. He was too, still pretty traumatized by mm-hmm. what happened to him uh, growing up. 
And, you know, with his experience being deported in 2016. So he said, no, thank you. Yeah. And he's claiming that Justin Chan and his team in the movie appropriated um, Adam Krebser's story. Yeah. Via Antonio's, the, the main character's story. So um, I guess like Adam, Antonio was... Um, uh, adopted at the same age. So so Adam and the character Antonio were adopted at the same age. They both have pregnant partners um, and uh, a pregnant partner who encountered ICE and they had a, abusive um, foster parents. Yeah. So this is like a serious um, thing. Yeah. I don't even think it's an allegation. I just think, I think all these things are true I just think it depends on what if you consider it to be specifically appropriating Adam Krapser's story because I know a lot of adoptees who were consultants on the movie are defending Justin Chan and saying we see a lot of our stories in this story as well like that's kind of the point right right like that yeah. this is art it does feel like our story it is mm-hmm. similar to our story that was that, that was his goal was to yeah. make a story that was accurately reflective mm-hmm. of uh, adoptees. Um, Krapser's um, contention is that it's too close to his specific story, right? His own personal story. And, you know, uh, I think he's accusing Justin Chan of just looking at his story specifically and putting it on screen. Yeah. And using it to, I think in his words, like, Use it for his own um, goals in Hollywood. Yeah. Which I thought that was a pretty serious thing to say. Uh, what do you think in general about this whole controversy? I think there's a difference between inspiration and appropriation. And I think there's a line that is pretty blurry on this one between the two. Um, my read on it is that. Uh, I absolutely believe that Justin Chan was inspired by Crapster's story initially. I think as a creative individual myself, you're a creative individual yourself, I think we find these points of inspiration as launching points Hmm. to flesh out our own perspective on how somebody's situation or how this point of inspiration um, hit us. Um, And I think it's pretty hard to argue against that considering that his team reached out to um, Justin John's team reached out to Crapser early on in the process. Yeah, it's clear. Right. That being said, I think having seen the film and then also reading Crapster's allegations against Justin Chong, I don't think it is Adam Crapser's life on screen. I think there's a lot of nuance that has been added to this story that was probably gleaned from the stories that Justin Chong um, gathered through his research through other adoptees as well as Adam it's, Yeah, he told me he had several consultants who are adoptees and that these adoptees, this kind of brain trust of adoptees, were given every single iteration of the script right. to review 
and to um, provide feedback for. Right. So I, I don't know, man. I, I don't know. And these adoptees are defending Justin, obviously, yeah. you know, because they worked on the film and they're saying, you know, like, yeah, we see ourselves in this movie, too. I mean, that's mm. that's the whole thing. We, you know, they agreed to do that. And um, I think w- uh, one of them was saying, you know, in response to Adam Crapser that a lot of us were abused. by foster parents so i don't know if you that can include that in your list of things that justin's appropriated from your life because so many of us were abused adoptees you know by by foster parents i know that some of them spoke to justin about those experiences Mm -hmm. so for adam crapser the claim that justin is just taking his specific story and putting it on screen and, and and exploiting, you know, that, that his life, I don't, I don't know if, I don't know, man. I don't even know if I want to say this. I don't know if that's true. I don't think he did that. No, I, I, I don't think he did do that. Um, but I also understand why, um, Adam Crapster would feel like that's what happened. Completely valid. Especially yes. because that's his trauma that he's still working through. And no matter what, it's going to be sensitive, right? And like, I completely understand his perspective. Um, and I fully believe that he fully believes that that right. is what happened. Like, I don't think that he is. He's not out to get anybody here. No, he's not out to get anybody. Um but I also think that Justin Chan operated in, you know, uh, appropriately. Um, mm. And I think there's another there's another thing that bubbled up through, I think, one of Adam Crapser's representatives of just like, um, Justin Chan centered this film around himself and he should have had... Um, somebody that was adopted play the role of um Antonio. Um, I don't know about that. Yeah. I completely disagree with that. Yeah. And I think that goes sense. I think that goes way I think that goes back to something we talked about earlier in a much um you know less serious uh conversation, but around authenticity. And like mm-hmm. does it matter? And to what extent does it matter? I mean, representation matters. I think represent, yeah, representation matters, and accurate representation matters. But it's you know, it's it's acting. It's it acting. is acting, like you, you know, it, and that's okay. <laughs> it's, it's like no, Absolutely. Justin John's not an adoptee, but he's an act. He's a good actor. Yeah. And if the movie is meant to raise awareness for adoptees. Surely you'd want the movie to be really good, <laughs> right? Like you'd want you'd want like the best people on the job, like Alicia right. Vikander, who's like yeah. one of the best working actors in my opinion right now, yeah. and Justin Chan proves he's right up there with her. He's incredible in this movie. I don't know of I don't maybe there are adoptee actors out there who have the skills of Justin Chan, but I'd be shocked. Honestly, yeah. the odds of that just not because adoptees can't act or anything like that. <laughs> I'm not saying that, but you know what I mean? But Justin Chong's the man for the job here. This is complicated. Let me go through like some quotes here. So there's a group 
of um, adoptees who support the film, who support Justin Chan, and they release a statement um, that wasn't directly uh, addressed to Crapser, but they said that, you know, um, all of them see strong similarities. This is the quote. They see strong similarities to many of our histories, abusive families getting in trouble with the law, being deported while leaving behind small children. Um, We see Blue Bayou as a chance to shine a light on the injustice we have suffered, yet it is our own community that is now piling another injustice on us. And they're referring to the hundreds of adoptees who are actually boycotting this film. Mm. There There are hundreds of adoptees and their supporters who have signed a petition to boycott Blue Bayou because um, it's appropriated, allegedly, Crapser's um, story. So essentially, Chan's supporters, his adoptee um, uh, colleagues or or, um, consultants, are saying, listen, this movie's good for our community. (laughs) Like like it's raising awareness for us adoptees and what we're going through, and this could make real change. And but now there's this contingent of adoptees who are actually trying to boy, who are boycotting this film, and the people, the group that supports Chan, are saying, you know, oh God, this is so sad that you're doing this because like we need to shine a light on what we're going through. Mm-hmm. But the contention by the adoptees who are boycotting the boycotters is, what if some of us aren't ready to share our story with people? Right? Like they feel a little violated. Crapser himself said, I feel violated that my story's been put up on screen. Okay, I know how I feel about that contention. What, what do you feel about that argument that that um people some adoptees might not be ready? Not that we're in a position to have any opinion <laughs> on this at all. But just on a philosophical level, right? On a philosophical level. This isn't specifically their stories. Yeah, I mean, I think you could take the adoptees part out of it completely and just say who has the right to tell whose story Mm. and who gets to be the gatekeeper of those stories because I don't really think anybody gets to be the gatekeeper of those stories, right? Like the, it's in every right for the people that consulted with the film for their stories to be represented on screen. Yes. And the concerns of others can be heard and they should be heard, but it doesn't mean that they get to block other people's stories from being told. Like there's a lot of trauma and shared trauma that goes on throughout our country, throughout the world. And we need to understand that trauma so we can move through that trauma. And we can't move through that trauma if we ignore it because a few people aren't ready to address it. If you're not mm. ready to address that trauma, you absolutely should not watch the film, and that is completely within your rights. But you should not, in my opinion, block others from being able to be represented on screen. Yeah, and for others to like you and I to learn right like yeah. to, like to become aware about exactly what these people go through um not exactly but like you, you know what i mean like the the movie's incredibly specific emotionally 
mm-hmm. as far as the experience. It's very experiential. You feel like your family's getting taken away, you know, watching this movie. It's incredibly yeah. emotional. Um, and that's good because, you know, it's about empathy. Mm-hmm. It's about the only way people are going to care about these people who are being deported is if we can empathize with them. And what better tool to create empathy than film? I argue yeah. there maybe isn't any more powerful tool to to evoke empathy in people than than movies. So I just think I, I'm trying to be like sensitive here because like I understand these people's what why these people are so um, hurt mm-hmm. the people who are boycotting the film and I I understand and it's like I I can't imagine the 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 pain they've gone through and what they're experiencing seeing these I mean we're talking about how this movie's traumatic for us right yeah how traumatic is it for them to just to know that this movie's out there right yeah I get it but uh, you know just being frank it doesn't make any sense to boycott this film because boycotting the film with the argument that well we're not ready to tell the story when is it time to tell the story then when every single adoptee is ready to tell the mm-hmm. story, that's never going to happen. It's it's impossible, right? Right? That's it's <laughs> right. it's absurd almost. You know, mm-hmm. okay. So we're not going to tell this this story, which is fictional, by the way. It is a fictionalization. There's no one named Antonio LeBlanc, right? Like mm-hmm. like this. No one went through the exactly the things that Antonio went through exactly. Mm-hmm. We can't wait. We can't wait for... It's like saying like we can't make um, movies about sexual abuse until all victims are on board. Yeah. With yeah. that movie coming. Like, it doesn't make any sense. Mm-hmm. You know? I guess the person with the strongest argument is um, Adam Crapser, and we'll see how this plays out. I guess we'll follow up on this story as it develops. I'm sure it'll develop as, as the movie gains more momentum and, and becomes... Uh, more popular as weeks go on. Yeah, I mean, I... I don't even know if Adam Crapser has the strongest argument. Um, I know. I think, actually, like, the adoptees that consulted on the film might have the strongest argument um, here. And their stories are as valid as Adam's. And that's what I think that's something I want to speak to, is that, like, all the feelings that are being expressed here are all completely valid on both sides of this. Mm. But I think tactically what you've highlighted and I agree with is that like, it's, we can't wait to tell our stories. We can't wait to tell other people's stories until everybody's on board because it's just, it's not going to, it's not going to push society further if we um stay silent i guess right yeah we have to we have to have these conversations um and to have these conversations via you know cinema i think is so it's always been a powerful tool and i really believe in 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 film as a tool for change so anyway blue bayou wow that's intense (laughs) intense, (laughs) it's intense on so many levels yeah um but i i i I think Taylor agree with me here. Uh, we highly recommend everybody see this film. Yeah. Everybody. It's going to be streaming, what, October 
8th, I believe, right? October 8th on HBO Max. Yeah, so I'm going to watch it again. I'm going to have my partner watch it with me. I'm, I'm really looking forward to like the conversations that we'll have afterwards, which is probably one of the big intents of Justin Chan making this film is to, as you said, highlight these stories, gain empathy for um, the people that live these stories and to continue the conversation after you leave the theater. On a positive note, I did want to mention something that uh, Justin Chan told me in Mm -hmm. our interview about Alicia Vikander, Mm -hmm. who is one of my favorite actors working right now. She's just phenomenal. Um, I've written articles about her. (laughs) She's so good. But in this movie, this might be one of her best performances. And um, he told me that so Alicia Vikander, if you guys don't know, is like a really big actor. She's in big movies, um, incredi- incredibly popular. She was like the latest Laura Croft in the Tomb Raider <laughs> movie, and she was in Ex Machina and a, and a bunch of other awesome movies. But while filming Blue Bayou in, in Louisiana, uh, she flew to China for a day to do a big press thing, and then flew back and started and, and insisted on continuing to work on Blue Bayou. And she and Justin Chan were filming this incredibly emotional scene. And then she, <laughs> Justin Chan told me that she just like kind of doubled over mm-hmm. in between takes. And turns out she was really sick, not just jet lagged, but ill, not with COVID, but she was ill. And, but she insisted on shooting the scene, even though she was super sick. And he was telling me, you know, any actor, let alone any actor of her caliber could have just said, I need a day. Mm-hmm. You know, I, I need I need to rest or whatever. I'm I'm ill, but she believed in Blue Bayou so much. She loved the material and the movie and Justin so much that she insisted on working sick that day. And uh, I think that's a testament not just to Alicia Vikander as a pro, like a, like mm-hmm. a true professional, but to the power of this material and this film. Yeah, absolutely. Really good. Like really good movie. I think it's gonna it's gonna be in contention for best picture at the Oscars. I'm hopeful. Um shit, yeah, I know. What if um, it's not, man? I I don't know, man. I don't know. It's so good though. Like it's so good. It is good, but And it got see, the canned standing ovation. That's a really good sign. That's a but re- I just feel like you see these films and they resonate and then they kind of disappear. It's like almost a game of like when these things get released in some ways. So here's the on the so here's why I'm hopeful. So it got the the can ten minute standing ovation, which is like those movies typically get a nod mm-hmm. at the Academy Awards because all those people standing ovation for ten minutes, a lot of them are in the Academy. Like it's it's literally the Academy mm-hmm. there. And two, this is not the most competitive year. Mm. as far as film right like like it's kind of a weird year where where there aren't like a ton of movies coming out obviously because not a lot of movies were being made last year mm-hmm. so it's not going to be the most crowded field and if there are 10 nominations right. for best yeah. picture i think blue bayou has a good shot of being in there <laughs> <laughs> There's 10. Yeah. yeah, there is 10. Which now. I think That's is absurd, true. by the way. I think yeah, it's so stupid. Every year it feels like a stretch to <laughs> fill out the, those 10. That That's definitely true. The Cloudy 10 with a chance of meatballs, too. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, no, I mean, there is 10. There is 10. 
maybe we'll get one of those lucky 10 spots. I hope so, man. Blue Bayou, go watch it. Um, thank you guys for tuning in. I, I just want to shout out to all um, my loved ones who, man, Taylor, I would just be like hanging out with people. Like I'd meet up with, I met up with a friend like uh, in like, I, I was on like vacation and mm-hmm. I, I was in like on the central coast, California, met up with a friend to go to concert and we got out of our cars. He was like, Hey man, I was just listening to you to Taylor <laughs> driving over here. I've had so many friends and family say that they've listened to the show and, and provided like good feedback. So to anyone listening, I'm sure there's only a few of you, but if you're listening, we really appreciate you. Thank you so much for listening. We love you. Definitely. And you're my friend. You're the only friend I have. So um, thank you for listening. <laughs> <laughs> thank you yeah, for listening to this podcast and making this podcast with me. <laughs> Listen, guys, Taylor is open for business. He needs, he clearly needs friends. He's open. You know, we are your Asian best friends. He's open for business. He, he needs friends. He wants to be your friend, right, Taylor? Yeah, just send me your resume and cover letter and I'll get back to you. <laughs> Just if if you don't like ambrosia, you're out. Yeah, no, that's uh, <laughs> that's how I weed you out. All right, guys, uh, thank you for listening. We'll see you next week. I'm Bernard, and I'm Taylor, and we're your Asian best friends. <laughs>